Well, we're continuing our movement through the book of uh, Hebrews this morning, so let me encourage you to turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll be looking especially at um, verses 1, 2, and the first part of verse 3. But Hebrews uh, chapter 2, and then verses 1 through 4. I feel like summer all of a sudden just arrived, and it's here today. So we'll see how, we'll see how this goes. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Uh, for this reason, uh, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And let us pray. Father, we come before thee again this morning and thank you so much that the Most High is a prayer hearing God and we, we thank you for the assurance that because of the ongoing ministry of your Son, whoever lives to make intercession for us, we, we can come and, and, and come boldly to the throne of grace and we know that you hear us and I, I thank you already for the, the good day that you've been pleased to give us. Thank you for the preciousness of fellowship. Thank you that we can worship a God that is so glorious and, and pure and, and a God that is ruling, a God that is reigning, who is always working all things after the counsel of your own will. We thank you that we can trust you and rely on thee and glory in thee and, and so thank you for the, the blessing of fellowship the blessing of singing praises to your holy name and these moments I would pray uh, for the help of your Holy Spirit during this time to convey your holy word in a way that is uh, commensurate with its meaning with its intended meaning and I would pray as well that you who know our hearts would give us insight and give us understanding I pray it would not only redound to your glory, but it would be very helpful in our own thinking process and um, in the living and seeking to live the Christian life for your honor and glory. So I pray you would make application to our own souls and it would redound to thy glory and be for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have seen in, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. It consists of seven quotations from the Old Testament uh, that, that bring out the superiority of the person of Christ over angels. Uh, and, and we've noticed there, at least in part, that he was exalted to the place of a supreme, uh, supreme honor to the right hand of God the Father. We read that the angels worship him. Uh, the Son is addressed by God the Father as God. Uh, his throne is forever and ever. Uh, he created the heavens and the earth. They will perish, but he remains. So in this first chapter, there's this great emphasis on the exaltation of the person of Christ, the superiority of the person of Christ over angels. Now, then when you get into chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, uh, application is made of this, this reality of the su supremacy of Christ over angels. Um, in the context of the first of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews, warnings against apostasy, warnings against falling away from the living God. And various titles are given to this particular section. 
take heed or warning against neglecting salvation or the urgency of attending to God's Son's mediated revelation or warning to pay attention to the gospel. And um, the NIV Study Bible, I, I think, had a helpful summary of this section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says the initial warning is brief and moderate compared to the ones that come later. It is a comparison from the lesser to the greater. Uh, if God justly punished people for violating the Mosaic commands, then he will certainly punish people for neglecting the gospel of Christ. Uh, this comparison is grounded in the full and final revelation in the Son, who is superior to angels. And just by way of some further introduction here, um, I want to suggest to you that warning passages like this, and there are several more warning passages in the book of Hebrews, are, are greatly needed for our souls. Let me just give you a couple of reasons by way of introduction. Number one, the, the effect of, of these kinds of texts is to produce uh, the greatly needed disposition of sobriety in the living of the Christian life. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6 said, So then let us not sleep as others, but let us be alert and sober. Uh, he wrote, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. A, a sober spirit is needed because we are all in, in, engaged in a spiritual warfare. And the Apostle Peter wrote, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking someone to devour. It's, it's a needed um, disposition of soul to, to practice really effectual prayer that gets a hold of the being of God. In 1 Peter 4, 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So warnings like these and others in the book of Hebrews, like, um, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, or it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that, that, that does not produce levity or carelessness or Christian comedians. It produces sobriety and, and the opposite of levity, the kind of spirit that is needed in the living of the Christian life. And it's needed also, that is this and other warning passages, because there may, and this is just a little bit of uh, speculation on my part, there may be, because of our commitment to the glory of the doctrine of eternal security, and we glory in that, and, and when we rest our souls in that, it's possible that because of that, there may be a tendency to be a bit dismissive of warnings against apostasy. One of the glories of the gospel is that he who begin a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. Um, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And, and you know these verses, on and on it goes. That the glory of the gospel is the eternal salvation, is the eternal security of our soul. Now it may be that because of those kinds of verses, there's a tendency to downplay warning passages and not let them have the full effect in, in our souls, which they, they should have. And, and I, would, I would argue because these verses and others like them are in the Bible, that we need them because they're in a book like Hebrews who's written to brethren that, that we need them in the process of sanctification and growth and grace as well as positive statements we need warning passages as well to make progress in, in the Christian life um, <clears throat> excuse me I would, put it, I would put it like this as warnings are very helpful in common life they're, they're helpful in the spiritual life uh, as well was, you know, because I was involved in this I was thinking about how often we're, we're confronted with warnings in this life. You know, warning, keep out of reach of children. Um, if you're driving in a particular place where you haven't been before, at least it's helpful for me. If you see a street and there's a big sign that says wrong way, I, that's, that's a warning sign. That's, that's good. Um, 
someone might see might have a tendency to trespass on a particular piece of property and there's a sign that says no trespassing sometimes greater severity is needed so if the sign says violators will be shot on site that that, that will that will be a deterrent and and so there's all kinds of warnings for our well-being in common life and the same is true in the spiritual life we, we need warnings in in the living of the christian life so these kinds of texts are 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 needed and what i want to do this morning is have you consider um, the warning in this section in three different respects, three different respects. In the first place, there's a what I'm calling a general positive mandate, and the next two points are kind of based on this. So the general positive mandate is, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention Uh, to what we have heard. Uh, For this reason, looks back to the previous section. Uh, As one commentator put it, it indicates that the motivation for this exhortation is based on the superiority of God's self-revelation of his Son. And then B.F. Westcott wrote, because of the superiority of the Son of God over angels through whom the law was given. So under, under this first heading, I would give you, or have you note, four features of this positive mandate. The positive mandate being we must... Uh, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Number one, I, I would have you notice it's characterized by necessity and not preference. Which is to say, it's not in the category of suggestion or advice, uh, but necessity. And this is brought out by, you notice a little word, a um, little verb translated must. It's the, it's the Greek word day. It's to be required by obligation, compulsion, or convention. And the idea of necessity, I think, is also brought out by the fact that whoever the writer of Hebrews is, he he includes himself. It's not just, this is what you guys need to do, but he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So it's it's marked by necessity, not not preference. Secondly, adhering to this positive statement, it's characterized by a level of intensity and not moderation. Um, In other words... um, it's not just pay attention, but we must pay much closer attention. Now, some, one commentator put it like this, the meaning of this phrase, we must pay much closer attention. It could be, <clears throat> excuse me, closer attention than the Israelites paid to God's commandment in the Old Testament and in the, in the Old Testament times. Let, let that motivate, let that be a motivation. Or another one put it, and I, I think this is very helpful, The language implies that the the community had grown lax in their commitment to Christ and and were neglecting the Christian message. Now, there's much in the book to support that. Just, for example, in chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. There's another passage about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. However, in in terms of application, uh, because our author includes himself... What it does, it brings the kind of mindset, I think, that is always needed in the living of the Christian life. It's, it's never good if it's marked by passivity or lukewarmness or carelessness. There's never a sense of, you know, I finally arrived at the p- pinnacle of spirituality. I'm, I'm finally about as conformed to Christ as I could, could possibly be. You're aware of these words from the Apostle Paul. 
in the book of Philippians, in spite of all of his accomplishments, this is how he thought about his own spiritual life. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wrote similarly in 1 Corinthians Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified." So we must pay closer attention. It helps to inculcate this, this mindset of intensity that is, that is needed in the living of the Christian life. Well, then thirdly, under this first heading, um, this is presented as an ongoing priority, an ongoing priority. Pay much closer attention. Paul um, Elworth, who wrote a very, Ellen, excuse me, Ellingworth, who wrote a very helpful commentary on Hebrews, uh, comments on the grammar here, and, and he said the present infinitive implies continued effort. So it's pay much closer attention and continue to pay much closer closer attention. Same term occurs in. Second Peter 1.19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So in, in the broader um, context of Hebrews, it fits in with the same mindset of chapter 3 and verse 6, if we hold fast our confidence, or chapter 3 and verse 14, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. So, so it's an ongoing priority. You can maybe imagine somebody that's worked for a company for uh, 20 years and, and been on time every day for 20 years and think, well, this is pretty good. I, I, think, I think I'm going to start uh, sleeping in a little bit, maybe one or two days a week and see how that goes. You know, and it won't go well. You'll end up being in the unemployment line. It's the idea of an ongoing priority, and that's the thought here. Well, then, fourthly, under this heading, um, in terms of ongoing focus, there's an ongoing commitment to the word whose great theme is the salvation that is found in Christ. There's an ongoing commitment to the word whose great theme is the salvation that is found in the person of Christ. The text says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And it doesn't define in our text what is heard, um, but it's tied to the previous section that champions the person and the work of the person of Christ. You notice in, in chapter 1, excuse me, in verse 2, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his person. Um, he made purification of sins. So it has reference to the person and the work of the, the Son in the first chapter. And the author makes this point about the superiority of Christ by going to the Old Testament over and over again. As Peter O'Brien says, the word of the gospel which has been proclaimed in God's Son and central to which is their salvation. 
So by, by way of application, what we have heard, what we continue to hear, it's the revelation of salvation found in Christ, which is the great theme of Holy Scripture. Uh, the great storyline, this in my view, of Holy Scripture, according to the, this is the title of an old book, it's the unfolding drama of redemption. Somebody asked me, well, what's this whole thing about? It's the unfolding drama of redemption. It's about the fall and the recovery of man. And that recovery is only affected by means of a Messiah whose coming is prophesied in the Old Testament is recorded in the New Testament. So we're talking about an ongoing relationship with Scripture whose great theme is the redemption, the salvation that is found in the person of Christ. And let me just add here what we have, what we have heard refers to a, a certain kind of hearing. One commentator wrote, it implies submissive acceptance of what is heard. And that would be verified in chapter 3 and verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, what? Do not harden your heart. It's a certain kind of hearing. It's a, it's a hearing with a willingness to obey. A parent might say to a, a child, um, you need to go clean your room now. And then they notice that there's no movement from said child to the room, but they're just staying in the same place. And they, they probably have some little gizmo and their thumbs are going like this about 150 miles an hour. And they're, they're not responding at all. And so a few moments go by and the parent says, did you hear me? That's not a hearing test. It's not to see if your cranial nerve is working okay. It's an obedience test. Are you going to do what I told you to do? And the hearing here, it's like that. It's responding to what is found in Holy Scripture. It's responding to what we hear. So this mandate, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It helps us to understand the kind of relationship we should all have with God's word to the real benefit of our souls. Now, this is not isolated kind of information. Let me just give you four other scriptures that make the same kind of point. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your daughters. Deuteronomy 32, 46, he said to them, take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it's not an idle word to you, indeed it is your life. Proverbs 4.1, hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding, for I give sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. Proverbs 4.20, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Their life to those who find them and health to their whole body. So we see here in the first place that this warning is comprised of a positive mandate which presses the need for this ongoing attention to what has been heard. Now the question might arise is why is this level of commitment needed to the word and to this revelation? The answer is lest you drift away. That, that's, that's the motivation. So in the second place, I would have you notice what I'm calling an initial motivation, an initial motivation to pay much closer, closer attention to what we have heard. Why is such energetic language needed to secure our devotion to the Holy Scriptures, which speak of the salvation that is found in Christ? The answer of the text is, lest we drift away. That's to um, disbelieve. It's, it's going the wrong direction as far as faith is concerned. Gradually or slowly, it's conceived of as being carried along due to a water current. Uh, William Lane wrote, 
The peril against which the community is asked to guard itself is that of drifting off course. If it is proper to recognize a nautical overtone to hold a ship toward port or to fasten the anchors to a seabed, that the image of a drifting ship carried by the current beyond a fixed point furnished a vivid metaphor for the failure to keep a firm grip on the truth through carelessness and lack of concern. Another commentator put it like this, failure to give much greater attention will result in drifting away. These terms suggest a nautical metaphor. The hearers must attend to their course with diligence, lest through neglect they drift away and miss the intended harbor. Let me just, um, how are you guys doing? Let me just under this heading, give you three further comments uh, in this connection. Number one, uh, in the setting of this letter, um, in the setting of, of, the, of this letter, here's the opposite of drifting away. Here's what it doesn't mean. Here's the opposite of drifting away. Chapter 3 and verse 6, holding fast our confession. Chapter 3 and verse 14, uh, holding fast the beginning of our assurance. Chapter 4 and verse 16, drawing near with confidence. Chapter 12 and verse 1, running the race with endurance. That, that, that's the opposite of drifting away. <clears throat> Excuse me, number two, um, to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away, indicates there, there resides a tendency to wander from the faith that we have professed. That there resides in, in our souls a tendency to wander away from the faith that we profess. Now we see that in this inspired letter to brethren. We see it in the framework of Hebrews alone. As I indicated, it's addressed to brethren and I made reference to chapter 5 and verse 11, which suggests a moral and spiritual lethargy. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, so some are forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, one author wrote, there's a reluctance to identify public, publicly with a Christian community. It's, it's not assembling together because of peer pressure. And then there's the real pressure, particularly in this book, of, of persecution, um, and these people understood that. In Hebrews 10, 32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a, a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So they, they understood the reality of persecution. But then thirdly, I, I would submit we also need to hear this warning because we also have this remaining inclination to drift away and the forces which assist it still exist. So I'm arguing we have the remaining inclination to drift away and the forces that would help us drift away, that they still exist. The nautical illustration is very helpful here. It underscores this. Uh, on Mondays, not every Monday, but occasionally we'll go down to Tacoma and walk down by the water and go to the Point Defiance Boathouse. And people will pull up next to the dock and um, they'll fasten the boat, excuse me, get, get the language right here, the bow and the stern, the front and the back. They'll fasten it to the dock, um, what, what is it, a rope or a line. They'll hook it to the dock and, um, so to secure it. But when people park cars, they don't do that. 
Uh, um, you don't take out a rope and wrap it around the bumper, bumper and tie it to a post. It's not going to drift away anywhere. You put it in park and you're, and you're good. It's, it's fine. It might be stolen away, but it's not going to drift away. But with a boat, the, the case is radically different. There are currents that are there that will always move it along or float it away if it's not moored, if it's not hooked to the dock. And we need to always be paying closer attention to what we have heard because there's always active forces which will help us in drifting away or moving away from the faith that is once delivered to the saints. I mean things like persecution, um, things like the cares, the worries, the allurements of the world. Uh, Satan still prowls about like a roaring lion seeking who may devour. And because of remaining sin, we're not impervious to these forces. As I noted, noted recently, oh, by the way, let me just add this. I think if you want an example, now you might all, you have to check this out for yourself and see if you track with this, but I think one helpful example is, is Demas. He was a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes about Demas, and he says, having loved this present world, he's, he's departed. Now, some might just think, well, that's just backsliding. I, I take that to be more serious. And my, my reasoning is the word departed there, having loved this present world, he's departed. It means to abandon. It means to leave behind. In the book of 1 John, if, any, if, 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 um, if you don't love the world, the love of the, excuse me, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So Demas to me is an example of, what, of this drifting away. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's just because of what I have done over the years. I, I, I've seen people that insofar as I can tell, that they fit exactly what the text is talking about. I'm not talking about leaving the church, but they just slowly, incrementally, left the faith it's not blast off it's not running out of the dot run, running out of the, the starting blocks it's just a slow movement away from what appears to be an, a, a love for christ and a, and a fear of god to the to the land of indifference to the land of, of carelessness where, where the, the things of the soul they just don't matter anymore and so there is this tendency so number one we have this general mandate we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Secondly, there's an initial motivation to practice it, lest we drift away. And then thirdly, what I'm calling an ultimate motivation to practice it. And by that, I mean, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I was thinking when I was preparing, uh, some of these texts sounds like the kind of thing you would say to an unsaved person, don't they? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, that's what, you, that's what you say when you're preaching to, to, to unsaved people. But that's what we find in this book to those who are professing Christians, those who are brethren. We have these warnings which, which sound like this is what I would say if I was speaking to a person who was unsaved. Let me just take a moment here and kind of put this in context. You notice there's three statements here. Number one, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Number two, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. Number three, in light of that, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? <clears throat> so it's an argument here from the lesser to the greater. And two quotes, I think, are helpful in kind of summarizing this. William Lane says, if disregard for the Mosaic law was appropriately punished, unconcern for the gospel must inevitably be catastrophic. And Paul Ellingworth wrote, Jesus is superior to angels, so if the Israelites were severely punished whenever they disobeyed the law, which they had received from God through angels, the punishment for disregarding what God has spoken to his son will be even greater. Just let me trace the thought a little bit here. 
Uh, number one, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that is reliable or dependable. This is a reference to the, the law of Moses, um, to, to Moses receiving the law of God. Um, it's not by angels, but it is through angels. Now, you might be thinking, uh, Doug, I've read Exodus 19 and 20. There's no mention at all of angels in the giving of the law. Let me just offer four texts that I think give a legitimacy for seeing the involvement of angels in the giving of the law. <clears throat> you can look at these later if, uh, later if you so desire. But Deuteronomy 33, 2. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. And then two texts from Acts chapter 7. This is in the context of Stephen's sermon, verse 38 of Acts chapter 7. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. And then in verse 53 of the same chapter, you received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And then the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So it's legitimate to see angelic, all, angelic involvement in the giving of the law of Moses. And then the second statement, in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. That is, every transgression and disobedience of the law of Moses that received a punishment, a just punishment. Transgression is the idea of going beyond a moral boundary or limit. Disobedience is unwillingness to, to hear. And the punishment meted out, meted out for disobedience, notice it's, it's just, which means it was merited. There, there's no miscarriage of justice. Every punishment in the Old Testament meted out by God is a perfect, pure display of justice. And the third statement, in, in light of that, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Again, the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. F.F. Bruce the great salvation proclaimed in the gospel was brought to earth by no angel, but by the Son of God himself. And Peter O'Brien, if the earlier message of God delivered by angels was so serious a matter, then how can those addressed escape if they neglect the message brought by God's Son? So if God was just in punishing their disobedience, he will be just in punishing those who neglect the salvation that is only found in the person of Christ. So by way of conclusion... What makes, what makes this warning so powerful, at least in my own way of thinking, is the nature of the salvation that is cited here, if we neglect so great a salvation. I take it in the most basic redemptive sense. The idea of salvation, as you know, it's deliverance or, or release. One put it, the state of being delivered or preserved from harm, judgment, especially as what that state entails, a safe haven in heaven. The idea is brought out, the idea of, of catastrophe is brought out very well in Chapter, chapter 11 and verse 7, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen and in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his, house, of his household, the deliverance of his household, the safety of his household. So I, I take it as a redemptive deliverance from the reality, the reality of the wrath of God. Now I take it that way because of the, the force of the word escape, which is in the text. And later on it talks about it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the reason it's so great a salvation 
Christ is the only one who accomplishes this. It's infinitely great. He's the only one that can deliver from the reality of this wrath. And to neglect it, it's not to care. It's to feel no concern or no interest. That's insane. Not to feel care or concern or interest about the eternal salvation of one's soul. It's to drift away from the place of hungering and thirsting for righteousness to the place of indifference to spiritual things. And so I would just argue we need these kinds of texts to progress in the faith, to progress in sanctification. And um, now if you ask the question, you probably wouldn't, but I'll ask it for you. Um, when in particular do we need these warning passages? You know, in terms of prescription, at what points in our life or what point in our life do we need these kind of passages? I'm just going to let the Puritan Thomas Manton answer that question. When do we need these warning passages? He says this, when you are in danger of dullness, deadness, and neglect of Christ and his salvation. So that your hearts need quickening and exciting to duty. Sometimes a coldness in holy things and a sluggishness creepeth on the best. And you may find you begin to grow careless and customary. The conscience becomes sleepy, the heart dead, the affections cold. A lively inculcation is then necessary. You must rouse yourselves by putting questions to your heart. And one of the questions he lists is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is, we will not. So what I'm saying is we need positive precepts in, 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 in the, the field of saint, the area of sanctification, but we need these warnings, and, and it helps us to make progress in the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We need them both, and let us pray. Father, I, I ask that you would take what we've considered this morning and apply it to our own souls. Lord, we, we know that we are, are pilgrims in this world. We know that we're just passing through. We want to stay faithful to thee. We want to grow in grace and the knowledge of your son. So I just pray you might be pleased to take what we have considered and apply it to our hearts for your honor and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.